Miamians and listeners from around the world, welcome to another episode of Miami Global Net, where you get to meet the people that support Miami's international landscape. This is your host, Alejandro Cervalli, and remember to please subscribe if you want to stay up to date with what's happening in our global city. Today, we have our friends. We're back with our friends from the EACC, the European American Chamber of Commerce here in Florida with Christina Sosinska. Thank you so much for bringing us this amazing topic on decarbonization of transportation. I'm going to pass it over to Christina so she can break it down for us. Yes, thank you, Alejandro. Hello, my name is Christina Slezinska, and I'm the executive director of the EACC Florida. We're the Florida chapter of the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Americans and Europeans connect to do business. EACC provides resources, education, and updates on regulatory and legal developments of relevance to the transatlantic business community. We organize events on issues of interest to our constituency and offer unique connections and networking opportunities. We're very, very happy to partner with Miami Global Net on this podcast series of deep dives, focusing on big picture issues and how they affect transatlantic business activities. On this deep dive, we will be discussing decarbonization of transportation, what it means, what industries it affects, how it fits into the green strategies of both the European Union and the United States, and what transatlantic cooperation in this area looks like. For this deep dive, we're delighted to have Gzim Okakoglu, who is first counselor on mobility and transport at the delegation of the European Union to the United States in Washington, D.C. His role is to support and promote transport-related cooperation and dialogue between the EU and the United States. Xim was on an official visit to Miami at the beginning of March, and I was impressed by the depth of his expertise, his passion, his curiosity, and his eagerness to learn from his interlocutors as we visited local authorities, academia, the consular corps, and companies here in Florida active in this sector. So now, without further ado, I'll pass the floor to Alejandro Cervalli, our host here at Miami Global Net. Thank you very much, Christina. Gassim, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you, uh, Alejandro, for, for this invitation. And very happy to be back virtually this time in Miami after being there in person uh, a bit more than one month ago. But it's a pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you. It's awesome that you're joining us from D.C., where you are operating most of the time throughout the year, right? Exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm based in D.C. at the EU delegation, so uh, I'm trying to, uh, to, to cover all those uh, transportation topics uh, from here. Uh, and obviously, with the pandemic, you know, I, I was stuck somehow uh, in D.C., but we continue working uh, with the administrations, uh, with the people in, in Congress, with, uh, with the industry, uh, with our partners, the member states, uh, colleagues here. And, uh, but we are happy now to be able to also to, uh, to meet people in different states. Uh, virtually and in person, so uh, it's it's a real pleasure to uh, to be able to uh, to exchange on those topics. Thank you, thank you. It's our pleasure to have you on the show as well. So let's start by can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I'm as I as Christina introduced, I'm the transport counselor. Uh, I'm from Belgium originally. My name is in sound Belgium. I have uh, Balkan Balkanic roots, you know, uh, uh, Western Balkans. But uh, I was born in Brussels. Educated. I'm an engineer by uh, by education, and uh, it's been now 20 years that I've been working for uh, the European Commission, uh, and uh, based in DC in the last uh, two and a half years since August 2019. 
Uh, and I've been working in transportation in the last uh, uh, almost 15 years. So uh, this is really the core of what I've been doing. And despite being an engineer, most of the work that I've been doing now in the commission is really on policy, uh, regulatory work. Um, I have to say that my background in, in engineering, especially on, on the digital topics, helps me a lot because it's, I would say, the blending between digitalization and transportation, which, uh, which is the core of my interest. But of course, we have other uh, pressing uh, challenges, and the decarbonization is one of them. And I will be happy to, to say a bit uh, about, about that in a few minutes. So you work in the EU delegation. How does that? How does your portfolio of work fit in the complex EU administration? Uh, well, I work in a delegation representing DG Move, which is the department dealing with mobility and transport in the European Commission. And as such, I am here to make sure that all the existing agreements that we have in transportation with the US are implemented and continue being implemented. Uh, and also to foster all the exchanges and the collaborations that we have in a range of topics. Transportation, obviously, I would say the, the biggest part of my portfolio is aviation, because we have existing uh, commercial agreement, uh, the, the so-called, uh, for those who are familiar with the jargon, uh, open skies agreement. So basically allowing any U.S. airlines to open up routes to the EU uh, and likewise uh, giving the opportunity to uh, European airlines to open up new routes to the US. Uh, and you see it's also evolving. Uh, sometimes you have new routes by uh, US or, or, uh, or European carriers. Uh, just recently, I think there were a couple of new routes also to Miami, so it is re really welcome. Uh, so we have this agreement that allows that, that puts up the, the, the rules on how this can happen and open uh, as freely uh, and as openly as possible. But beyond that specific topic, there are other elements that I'm covering. We have, for instance, an agreement on aviation safety between the FAA on the, U on the US side and the European Aviation Safety uh, Agency uh, on the European side. We have also an agreement uh, on, uh, on technologies related to air traffic control. So we share experience and also we work together between FAA and the European Union, uh, DG Move, uh, uh, to, to, to decide or at least to, to set up what are the new trends and new technologies that will help improve uh, air traffic control uh, towards the future. Uh, but, well, this is in, in a nutshell on aviation. But there is also some agreements that we have, uh, collaboration agreements on the maritime side. Uh, one is the promotion of what we call short sea shipping. So making sure that shipping is used more uh, and beyond purely, uh, I would say, transoceanic. Uh, in Europe, uh, for instance, um, what we call shorty shipping, so shipping cargoes between uh, EU ports, is quite uh, extended. We have uh, close to 30% uh, of freight transport within Europe happens by sea between the European ports. And uh, also uh, here in the US, we are trying to, to exchange uh, our experience uh, and, and to see how this is happening. There is also a program, a similar program in the US uh, there, and we collaborate with the Maritime Administration on that. So just to give you a flavor on that. Uh, beyond those existing agreements, what I also do is cover all the developments on technology here in the US, uh, on the transportation side, uh, but also on the regulatory side. Uh, obviously, uh, 
recent regulatory uh, mm-hmm. developments concern the, uh, the infrastructure uh, bill here in the U.S., uh, with a big focus on uh, on the transportation and decarbonization of transportation, we'll, we'll, I think we'll we'll cover that a bit later. Uh, but uh, those are the elements that I'm doing here. Uh, but uh, it, it's always a pleasure, and I, I learn every day. And I hope that I can bring also some some flavor of what we do uh, in Europe yeah, with, with our colleagues here in the US. Oh, 100%. I look forward to learning more about that throughout this podcast. So I, I know that the, the EU Green Deal is very important, right? How does the decarbonization of transportation fit in that strategy? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's very, very important to, first of all, to say what is the uh, EU Green Deal. Yes. The EU Green Deal is uh, the strategy that the European Union has put together to address one of the, I would say, most pressing and challenging, uh, uh, well, one of the most pressing challenge that we have actually uh, as EU, but also globally, which is the, uh, the climate change and the effect of climate change. Um, and uh, so the EU two years ago, three years ago in two, 2019, put up this European Green Deal, which is a strategy to see how we decarbonize our, uh, our society, our economy, while at the same time making sure that those efforts uh, leave no one behind. That's very important to make sure that we uh, embark all those uh, who would have, I would say, some more challenges when we go to decarbonization. But at the same time, do it in a way that we are able to capitalize on the, uh, those challenges to create growth economically. Because this whole transformation of our economy going green, so decarboniz- decarbonization, uh, pro- provides also some opportunities. So the whole idea is to, to bring this, this strategy on how we do that. This is the Green Deal. And, and of course, to do so, there are some sectors of the economy which are, I would say, more uh, uh, impacting. For instance, energy is the number one area because uh, when you look at um, the decarbonization, so how to get rid of fossil fuels, basically, uh, energy, whether productions or consumptions, including transportation, altogether, it's 75% of the green gas uh, emissions comes from energy productions or use. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do that, and we have already started uh, in the EU or dealing with that. But then there are other sectors like buildings, you know, heating buildings, for instance, uh, or using uh, uh, electricity for those buildings. Uh, it's important to see how our electricity or the heating that we provide is clean. And uh, transportation is also a big chunk when you think about it in, in this concept, because transportation in the U.S. is 29% of all the greenhouse gas emission. Mm. In, the, in Europe, transportation uh, contributes to 25% of the greenhouse gas emission. So you see that it's, a, it's really a big part of what we have to do. And if you compare transportation to the other sectors in the last uh, tw- 10 or 20 years, it's the only sector where the greenhouse gas emissions have continued to increase. And uh, so that, that's where lies one of the biggest challenge, but we also have opportunities. So that's why uh, decarbonization of transportation is really very high on the priorities of what we need to do. And uh, so that's why at EU level, uh, as part of the Green Deal, and as part of all the measures that we've put in place 
to decarbonize transport. Uh, we have had a very strong focus in there, and uh, and uh, so I'm happy to 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 cover this a bit more uh, uh, after that in specific elements, if you want. Oh yes, for sure. Thank you. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned that the emissions had increased. Now, regarding uh, road transportation, is there a particular reasons why they have been increasing in the EU, in the EU and the United States? Yeah, it's it's a very good question. Um, well, first of all, you mentioned road specifically. Overall transportation, uh, all the projections, whether in the US or in the EU, show that the uh, the transportation demand, so uh, the use of transportation, will continue to grow whether for transporting people uh, or for the transport of goods. And this is because, you know, population is growing, consumption has been growing, uh, demands have been growing. Uh, we have seen that during the pandemic, you know, where on the one hand, people could uh, not travel that much, certainly by plane, but at the same time, they were home, they were purchasing things through e-commerce, through all those, uh, those uh, websites and Amazon and others. And what we have seen was this uptick of, uh, of freight uh, leading to also the supply chains that we are aware of. This was true for, during the pandemic, but this trend has been there and is there and will continue to be there. I mean, we cannot really uh, seriously think of curbing that uh, because that's how economy is driving. Uh, transportation is one of the uh, engine of uh, the economy because it allows the, the, the people and the, and the goods to move. Now, coming back to road transport, why is it so important? Well, road transport in the EU is about 70, 72% of all uh, greenhouse gas emissions from transport. We have uh, aviation about 14%, uh, maritime is uh, 13, 14% as well. Uh, road transport is 72%. In the US, road transport is 82% mm. when you think about passenger, but also uh, the trucks on the road. So it's even bigger, even higher. And this has to do with, you know, the, the ge geography, uh, how, how the country is built, um, the transport systems, uh, choices also over time. Uh, but this is fact. Road transport has uh, the biggest role. Uh, that's why road transport is the area where we believe uh, the most has to be done. Uh, because it's the, the largest chunk of it. Now, the question is, why hasn't road transport or is road transport maybe at some point will start reducing? Again, I take the example of COVID. During COVID, road transport has somehow declined in terms of passengers. We've seen it in the US. Mm. Same in Europe. Now, where we are you know, coming out of COVID, I cross my fingers that you know, we are really out of it after those... Uh, various uh, uh, variants and sub-variants that we have been facing with, uh, we see that road transport is again back to the same level and will continue increasing. Well, one of the, one of the reasons why it will continue uh, increasing is uh, that people need to move, but also we have to think, are there sufficient alternatives to road transport, whether for the transport of goods or for the transport of people? So that's also one of the elements to, uh, to consider. Uh, and the answer is probably there are not enough uh, alternatives. And when you think about uh, freight, it's also the same. We have 
uh, I would say freight rail, which uh, works quite well in the US. Uh, it's, it's in developments in, in, in Europe and we have to do more. So we are building new uh, alternatives, but this requires also a lot of infrastructure uh, there. And uh, that's where you know, all these discussions and those policies on uh, infrastructure bill, more funding, more money, uh, is is important, but it will continue increasing no matter what. That's why we have to concentrate on road transport very much, and that's what U.S. actually uh, is is doing. When you think, uh, when you see the the programs that have been put in place here in the U.S., uh, and that's also what we are doing in Europe. But not only, of course, we we, we cover all modes of transport, but clearly, road is uh, is a main target. So, what are some of the key initiatives? to decarbonize the road transportation in the EU, for example, and any yeah. timetables? Time yeah, very, very, good, uh, uh, very good questions. From the moment that the road transport is a, is, a, is a target, I mean, as I mentioned, there are different things. One is to concentrate on uh, basically the uh, decarbonization of that specific mode of transport. What does that mean? All the fossil fuels that is being used, so uh, the, 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 the petrol and the, the diesel for, for the truck, etc., for uh, road transport, we need to promote and find alternatives uh, and promote the alternatives. And clearly, uh, it means electrifying road transport uh, on, on a really short to medium term. There will be other options uh, in the future, like uh, using uh, hydrogens, uh, other alternatives. But this is the key element, first priority, and the bulk of the energy will be to, uh, to concentrate on that. Second element that I also alluded to is to what extent we can uh, make or promote other modes of transport, other alternatives that are less uh, polluting, if you want, uh, as, as an alternative, whether for uh, freight. I mentioned to you that we are doing quite a lot of work in Europe to uh, to promote and to build alternatives in rail, for instance, which is the the least um, uh, carbon emission uh, emitting uh, sector. Uh, mm. But also uh, inland waterways, all the, the 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 rivers and the canals, or the rivers. So we want to promote this, and and I, I can say a few words about that later. Uh, the third element is um, price. If you put a cost on the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, when I say price, maybe it's not the right, the right element. So how to find some incentives by putting a price on the, what we call the externality. So the effect of uh, the, uh, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the pollutions, the congestions related to road transport, all this has a price on the economy and society. So we also need to, to find ways on, on uh, putting these incentives on the use of road by factor in those elements, the price for society of those externalities, such as uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions or congestions or other elements. But let's come back on the first and most uh, important element, which is electrification. Now, what we have put in place, uh, what we've proposed as a, as a European Union, this was back in uh, July 2020, it was this, what we call the Fit for 55 package, what does that mean, Fit for 55? We have committed as the EU, first of all, to be carbon neutral for two, by 2050 altogether. We have committed to 
reduce the greenhouse gas emission of transport by 90% mm-hmm. overall by 2050. And by 2050, uh, th- sorry, by 2030, we have committed to reduce altogether the greenhouse gas emission by 55%. So concretely, for road transport, what we are proposing, what we have proposed, is to gradually uh, put in place uh, new rules for the uh, maximum emissions that the vehicles, the cars and the van can can emit between now and 2035. And basically what we're saying is that by 2025, we want to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from the vehicles, from the cars by 15%. It mean, what does that mean? It means probably more efficient engines than what we have today or a gradual uptake of uh, less pollution like electrical engines. Reduce that by 55% by 2030 in line with our Fit for 55 uh, uh, ambition. And by 2035, reduce it by 100%. What does that mean? If the law is passed, it's in discussion right now in our legislative process between the European Parliament and Council. It means that by 2035, no uh, uh, internal combustion engines, so petrol cars, uh, will be put uh, on the market, will be sold any longer from that day onwards. This is what it means. This is what we want to do that. And by doing that, Basically, we are promoting a gradual uh, electrification of the uh, car park, of the van park that we have, uh, and making sure that by uh, 2050, because you have to consider that cars, when they are in the market, on the average, they are, uh, I would say the average age of a car on the European market is about uh, 10, 11 years. So if you ban the sale of uh, petrol cars starting 2035, In principle, by 2050, you would not have uh, any on the market with maybe some exemptions or exceptions that you would have, you know, uh, old cars and and some specific exemptions. So this is very powerful. This is the most powerful element. But obviously, this is not enough because if you are pushing for uh, electrification of cars, you need to make sure that the charging infrastructure and the grid is capable of uh, supporting this. And also, very important, you need to make sure that the electricity that fuels those cars is also clean, is not an electricity coming from fossil fuels. So we also have put in place uh, or proposed uh, a regulation that would gradually, over time, mandate the deployment of charging infrastructure Uh, In our case, we propose to have every 60 kilometers, so roughly every 40 miles on our main, what we call our core networks or on our main highways, there will be at least every 40 miles uh, the the, the necessary charging infrastructure for those cars. But of course, it's not only that. We are also, in, in parallel to that, putting in place some new requirements for all new uh, building constructions especially apartment buildings, so that they would also provide in the parking areas a charging infrastructure there. So it is something that goes, uh, I would say, hand in gloves with uh, this mandate for for cars, 
So those are the two uh, most visible elements regarding this, this part. I also mentioned to you the, the cost of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gas emission, the incentive. And uh, there we have what we call the, uh, the European trading scheme. Now uh, we get into maybe a bit something which is a bit uh, technical, but I will try to, to explain to you what it is. We have put in place in 2005 in the European Union a system by which industries, especially energy industries or heavy industries, uh, we, we have put a cap, a maximum of what they can emit as, as a as CO2. Uh, basically, it's, it's, a, it's a maximum pollution that they can have. So it's a system with a market where we say you can emit so much in this year. If you emit less, you receive some kind of a, of a, of a, of a certificate and a right to emit more that you can trade with other industries that emit more. And so it's a system by which, it, it, which is made to incentivize the reduction of greenhouse gas emission. It is a system, it's a system which has been applied so far to uh, energy sector, to industry sector. And it has been very successful because in those sectors, we have had a reduction of greenhouse gas emission by uh, 43% since 2005. This, this system has not been applied to transport so far, but since the Fit for 55, we are also proposing to uh, apply this to the road transport sectors, but also, for instance, to maritime transport. Maritime transport was not part of this sector, of this uh, emission trading scheme. And the idea would be to, uh, to incentivize the producers of fuel to work our, on alternative fuels, on uh, cleaner fuels, uh, and also to reduce basically the, uh, uh, or to put a cost on, on the, the greenhouse gas emission for all those elements. So it's another uh, mechanism or another way to incentivize by playing on, I would say, the, the cost of, uh, of, uh, of the pollution, if you want, the cost of greenhouse gas emission. I don't know if it's very clear, but it, it's a complex system. I try to, to, to make it a, as, as, as simple as possible, but that's what we're trying to achieve. No, I like it. I like it. It's, it's, I, wanted, I wanted you to break down the, the emission trading system a little more, but I, before you do that, I, I want to say that I like the, the electrification approach of the, whole, of the whole thing, not just, hey, let's make cars electric, but also let's make sure that the network is there for people to recharge their vehicles, and also that the, the way that we produce that electricity is also you know, friendly to the environment and it's also mindful, you know, so it's, it's a wholesome approach is what I'm seeing. Uh, the, the emission trading system, I understand what you're saying. Can you, can you break it down a little bit more for me on how that works? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I was trying to give a big picture of, of how it works. Uh, basically overall, again, it's a system where you say uh, greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions have a cost on society. So let's put a price on this and let's uh, put a maximum uh, amount of what industries or given sectors can emit, can pollute. If they emit, mo if they emit more than that amount, they will have to pay for that. Uh, if they emit less, that's good for the environment, but they would have the right to uh, exchange the, the amount between the maximum that they have and what they are emitting with those other sectors, with those other industries which emit. 
it's a market basically that we've put in place uh, where the, the, the rights to pollute, if you want, or the rights to emit are exchanged between different players. The ones who emit more, it's a cost on them. So they have to sell, uh, uh, they can sell okay. uh, they, or can trade their, their rights to those companies or those industries which do not. For the road sector, what it would mean is that we want to apply this to the road sector by saying that the fuel producers, and we, are to, we want to target the fuel producers, uh, when they put uh, into the market uh, fuels, they would have not only to, uh, to provide figures uh, on how much it has cost in terms of greenhouse gas emissions to produce these fuels, but also what would be the impact of those fuels uh, if they are used into the market. Obviously, the fossil fuels will have a high cost. If you have alternative fuels, which are less uh, CO2 or greenhouse gas emitting, they, they will have a lower cost. Uh, ultimately, uh, those uh, producing uh, I would say electricity will have a, a, a much lower cost. Uh, but when I say alternative fuels, um, uh, we have you know, those uh, uh, bioethanol, biomethanol that, that, that are used, uh, uh, or, or to a certain extent biodiesel, those will, will be considered in that uh, pocket. Uh, but we are really looking for the future in terms of alternative to, uh, to hydrogen, especially for the road sector, because we see electrification as a path for short to medium term. Uh, that's the way to go now. But we realize that once we will have uh, uh, an industry that produces clean hydrogen, uh, hydrogen will be there and will be, uh, I would say, even more efficient for heavy lifting, so for the truck industry, for instance, uh, for aviation, definitely, uh, and also for producing fuels for the maritime sector. So, so clearly those industries are the ones which are targeted and, uh, and they will have the right to, you know, to, to trade uh, those elements. Uh, and they will have also, uh, I would say, a, a cost factors. They will have to pay somehow for producing fossil fuels uh, for, for, for the road sectors. And this cap, this cap price that, or, or this cap that, that limits the amount, the amount of yeah. the amount that, that an individual company can produce is only for the production of fuel companies or also for the transportation companies themselves for them to trade and buy in. Yeah. The, the way, I mean, the system, uh, the, the ETS system for the road sector, the details of it are still in the making. Okay. The idea is to target really the fuel producers, and the idea is to avoid uh, to target directly. You know, you mentioned the trucking companies or the individuals using uh, cars, because we realize that uh, uh, you know this transition to decarbonization of road transport is costly. Overall, there's going to be a cost to that, but there is a cost of not doing anything. But we want to be sure to avoid to target, uh, I would say, the ones which have, you know, the, the smaller shoulders uh, or which cannot afford not to, for instance, uh, use their cars or, or trucks uh, in the short term and cannot afford in the short term to go to electric, for instance. Uh, but we don't want to, to put pressure on those ones. Really, the, tar the target that we are having here is the producer. We want to even incentivize the producers of fuels to work towards more alternative fuels and avoid to target directly, uh, you know, the truck owners or the truck com trucking companies uh, or the uh, or the uh, or the individual users. Obviously, 
the whole systems may have as an uh, you know impact uh, at a certain moment uh, an increase potentially of the, the price of the fuel but you know the, the current crisis also shows us that we don't need uh, decarbonization of transport to see an increase of fuel price uh, we see that the crisis that we have today uh, whether in Ukraine but also supply chain crisis has created this inflation there is already uh, an increase on the, on the fuel price uh, and uh, so that's why we don't think that decarbonization will, will have that specific impact on that. On the contrary, on the long run, by being less depending on fossil fuel, uh, we will really decrease uh, the, uh, the, the price of uh, the energy uh, for, the, for the people. So eventually, this will be also a win-win, also uh, uh, not only for, the, for, the, for, for our future, for, for the nature, for our future, but also for, for the people. So coming back here to the U.S., specifically U.S. Congress, and I, I understand they recently passed a massive infrastructure bill, which includes elements of the president's energy and climate strategy. Now, what are some of the key similarities and differences as it relates to decarbonization of transportation? Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting and, and very, very good. First of all, uh, we have to realize that, uh, at least with this administration, uh, we are totally aligned between US and the EU on the, uh, on the objectives that we are trying to, to get here. Um, uh, some months ago during the, the COP26 conference in Glasgow, uh, where the special envoy uh, Kerry was there and the uh, European Vice President uh, Timmermans dealing with the climate change also were there. And we, we showed united front in, in showing the way, showing the world the way to, uh, to work uh, towards decarbonization and how to, uh, to go uh, about this. Uh, on the US side, there's been a, a number of elements which contributes to that. And you mentioned a very important part on the US side, which is this uh, infrastructure bill. Uh, for, for those who follow a bit what's happening in Congress, this infrastructure package was, cons uh, cons uh, was, was, was split in two parts. One was this infrastructure bill, which was adopted um, before, uh, I think before, before, before Christmas. And the second part was this Build Back Better uh, bill, which included also another part dealing with energy and climate. On the first part, transportation was really big. Uh, $550 billion extra in addition to what is being uh, used in the US uh, for infrastructure. Uh, a lot of it to, uh, to build and, uh, and, uh, and repair uh, roads, bridges. Uh, that's the, the, the biggest part of it is, is really uh, look at the current infrastructure, hard infrastructure, uh, including the ports, the airports. Uh, but also there was a specific part of it related to the uh, electrification uh, uh, of the road. I think there was $7 billion dollars for charging infrastructure. So you see there that the ID on the, on the infrastructure side is also shared with the US. The US, uh, the US government in there has provided the means and Congress has adopted it to provide the means and the financing of all the charging infrastructure. And this administration, uh, there, there've been different uh, announcements in, in the last months by, uh, by Secretary, uh, uh, Buttigieg of Transportation, Secretary Granholm of Energy, together on uh, providing the funding and uh, to the states 
to uh, basically make sure that this infrastructure will be built. The second part of, of, of it was the incentives on the, the vehicles themselves. Uh, and that's maybe the main difference with, with, the, with, the, with the Europe. Well, first in the US, the second part, so the incentives, how to incentivize people to buy electric vehicles. This was part of the Build Back Better agenda, which has not been passed, as you know. So there are a lot of elements, the uh, incentivization of the, uh, of the electric vehicles is not adopted yet. So this administration, we understand, will try to, uh, to, uh, to, to adopt it in the coming uh, months, hopefully. Uh, and uh, this will be uh, the, the way to go. The approach in the US is really based on making sure that industries and also the people uh, understand the value and that there's this partnership between industries and the government. And the government is provi providing really incentive, incentivization or incent incentives uh, with the tax uh, breaks for the cars, if this is adopted by Congress, or providing grants and funding for building the infrastructure. So it's really uh, showing the way and setting high objectives. For instance, uh, one of the objectives of, uh, of the, this current administration is to halve the number of the, uh, of the petrol vehicles sold by 2030. So I told you that in the EU, we want to have 100% of vehicles uh, sold by 2035 should be electric. Here in the US, the objective is to have 50% uh, sold by 2030. It's an objective. The main difference now that I can say with Europe is that in Europe, we have uh, I would say we also have the incentives part because we have uh, different funding uh, mechanisms in place. We have the recovery funds. We have the so-called Connected Europe Facility Funds for transportation to help uh, the infrastructure uh, and to help incentivize uh, the, 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 what we do. But we have a bit more uh, prescriptive approach. We believe that it is important to create a legal framework and to create some uh, clarity predictability for the market, for the car companies, uh, for the energy companies to know where they need to go. And uh, that's why we, we have those rules that I was mentioning to you that we put in place, uh, where in the US, this is a bit, I would say, softer. In a lot of incentives, uh, there will be evolution also in terms of uh, uh, new uh, greenhouse gas emission uh, set for the future, or there are discussions on that also in the U.S., but it's a little bit softer. The, uh, the partnership that we have that I see in the U.S. is very close between the government and the industry. In, the Euro in Europe, we also have very close partnerships, but on top of that, we believe that creating this legal framework is important, and that's, that's how we work in Europe. Uh, that's the main difference uh, with, with the U.S. Uh, but the good news if I, may, if I may finish on this, uh, it's not because we create those, uh, uh, those uh, I would say, you know, the, the stick of the regulation, if you want, in Europe, that we don't have the industry on board. Uh, in this case, in the case of decarbonizations, what we have seen is that uh, uh, industry, uh, whether in the road sector, with the car manufacturer, uh, or in aviation, when we have our measures for decarbonization aviations, are also on board. Of course, they, they would like some, some carve out, they would like some more time, and they're, they're big of regulatory discussions, 
but they are fully on board on the on the main objectives and on the measures and a lot of them are not waiting a lot of them have already changed the strategies you've seen that in the us with uh, gm ford obviously i will not mention tesla tesla is on the lead in terms of uh, electric cars but now you see that the other main players they've all invested huge amounts of money billions of dollars in new uh, factories here in the us same is happening in europe with uh, volkswagen with uh, uh, Volvo with uh, Mercedes and, and others, uh, it is changing. They are on board. With our regulation, we provide, we think, a predictability, a, a legal framework and predictability for them to, uh, to, to move forward. So those are the main changes, so, main differences, uh, sorry. That's cool. So, okay, so I, I like that, um, I, I can see, that's what I mean. I, I can see that the similarities in the investment in the charging infrastructure and incentives is there. It, more specifically, in is there areas in which the EU and the US will be able to cooperate in order to achieve decarbonization goals? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we have many areas. I mean, first of all, to say that uh, we have engaged in, uh, and we are, I mean, it's, it's not new, but we have engaged and re-engaged and we continue to engage on all those elements in all modes of transport, when we talk about transport, I, I, will, I will not even mention uh, energy, energy uh, security, etc., which is important also for making sure that electricity is clean and, and all the work on, on, uh, on hydrogen, for instance, uh, for the future. Uh, but certainly, we, there are many areas where we collaborate. Uh, there have been discussions, for instance, on, uh, on supply chains, on, uh, on, uh, on, on batteries. Uh, so, of course, one of the important elements when you think about electrical vehicles is the battery. So we have initiatives on both sides of the Atlantic and there are discussion and collaboration on that. What I see also as, a, as an area of collaboration, uh, which actually is, is, is part of uh, the ongoing discussions that, that, that may happen also, when you look at charging infrastructure today, uh, thanks to the you know, pioneering role of Tesla uh, and others, there is already some charging infrastructure for the vehicles. For the trucks, it's going to be more uh, challenging because trucks require more power. So we need to work on those uh, uh, on some standards for the uh, truck uh, truck specific truck uh, charging infrastructure and chargers. And it is an area where we believe that we could work together on working on standards. Uh, that we could set together jointly because we are facing with the same issues. And uh, electrifying the, the trucking is a bit more challenging, will take a bit more time. It's there. Uh, we have already some announcement, but still, there is work to be done. This is an area. But more importantly, where are the areas where we have the biggest potential or collaboration is on aviation. Why? Well, first of all, aviation is a, is a global industry. It's like maritime, it's global. And those are areas where standards and the way that uh, I would say all the technologies being used in those areas are set at the international level, are set at the global level. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, decarbonization of aviation, there the path is much more difficult than for uh, road. For road, we have a clear path, which is we start, we push ahead with electrification, we'll go to hydrogen at some point. It's, it's there. For aviation, uh, despite the advances on, for instance, electrification, because of the uh, 
of the the weight, if you want, of the of the of the of the uh, of the aircraft be, because of the energy, the fuel uh, needed for uh, for flying. Uh, electrification is 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 existing, is promising, but will be limited to a very small segment, very small aircraft, very small distance, uh, not too much. Uh, I would say. Uh, well, limited to a number of passengers and to, to payload. Uh, so it will be limited. But then you think, how do I decarbonize aviation? Aviation is, is like road, you know, the, the greenhouse gas emissions continue growing. We expect certainly now that we are in the recovery phase after COVID that the, uh, the greenhouse gas emission of aviation will continue augmenting. Um, so we have to do something. There, the path is to use those sustainable aviation fuels. Those are the fuels which are produced from uh, waste oil, from uh, non-food uh, crops or that, that exist there. And that's the path to go because by using the sustainable aviation fuels and blending those with existing jet fuels, that's how we can reduce uh, the overall life cycle, if you want, of, uh, of, uh, of emission com uh, coming from aviation. And there, we totally, we are on the same path with the US. We have the same objective, which is gradually increase the use of sustainable aviation fuel uh, by 2000, uh, I mean, as, as, as smooth as possible. In Europe, we have a gradual approach where we want to uh, incentivize this uh, gradually. There is also a proposal in the US to incentivize this. But what is important in, in this topic, and when you talk about collaboration is, one, obviously, we need to agree on the objectives, which we do, and we have exchanged many times between uh, DigiMove uh, and the colleagues at FAA and the DOT uh, to discuss about that. But also, I was mentioning to you that the standards in aviation are set at the global level in what we call the ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is an organization coming from the United Nations based in Montreal, and which sets all the rules and all the standards for aviation. And uh, we have this year, 2022, in, a, in a September, uh, an assembly, which is had, held every three years. And that's where we discuss the targets that we want to give globally uh, in terms of uh, what, where we want to go, how, how much we want to decarbonize uh, uh, aviation. Uh, but also, that's an area where we can together propose and set a number of standards on making sure, for instance, that uh, aircraft can take up to 100% of sustainable aviation fuels in their engine. Today, and sorry, it's, it's a bit technical, but today the aircraft that are flying can, uh, of course, they work with a traditional jet fuel, kerosene, but you can also blend, so put a certain amount of sustainable aviation fuels up to 50%. Uh, and this is already great if we achieve that and, and if we have the capabilities to have these fuels. But the idea is to push those standards and to make it possible at a global level uh, that uh, engines will be able to take up to 100% of sustainable aviation fuel. It is just an example of the standards that we need to do to, to come together. And that's where uh, it's an area where we work and we want to work together with, uh, with, with the U.S. and we'll work together with the U.S. Uh, going forward towards this assembly later this year. So 
one of the things that's happening around the world, it's, it's you know, everybody, everybody knows the whole situation with Russia's aggression against Ukraine and its consequences. You know, what are some of those consequences in terms of fossil fuels, dependency, energy mix, renewables, affects the EU as well, you know, a path towards the decarbonization of transportation? Yeah, it, it's a very good question. But uh, first of all, before addressing that specific element, uh, it, it is important, first of all, to, to have a thought. I mean, we, we have been busy uh, in, in the EU, certainly in the, the EU delegation as well, uh, in, uh, in, in thinking and in coordinating uh, uh, measures, views, uh, as regards what, what, what's happening and uh, putting in place a number of measures and sanctions. You've heard about the different uh, sanctions put in place uh, by the EU, by the US, uh, all of them have been totally coordinated. Um, we have those uh, different uh, packages of measures that we put in place. In transportation, what it meant uh, specifically is uh, we have, uh, first of all, uh, looked at aviation, making sure that uh, uh, we close the European airspace to, uh, to Russian aircraft uh, uh, and to Russian-owned uh, uh, aircraft. So this was one of the first measures. And of course, as a retaliation, the, 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 the Russia also banned the, the European uh, aircraft. And we were happy to be joined by, by UK, by, by the US, who put up some similar measures. But clearly, this has also created some challenges for, uh, for, the, for, the, for the airline industry. Uh, on the passenger side, of course, we have stopped, all the European airlines have stopped uh, flying uh, to there. But the Russian airspace was used uh, traditionally by a lot of uh, European carriers, also actually some US carriers to fly from Europe to Asia for passengers, but mm. even more importantly for cargo. So what it meant now that Russia also as a retaliation banned uh, the, the flight of those uh, companies is that those companies needs to circumvent the, uh, the airspace of Russia uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine because of war, obviously, and creating much longer routes uh, creating additional costs. Uh, some of the airlines cannot operate any longer. I mean, their business models was, uh, they, were, they were flying over Russia, over Siberia. Um, so they have had to stop. So it's creating uh, an impact on uh, not only on the cost, but also uh, on the freight sector, which needs to find uh, alternatives. But, the, but coming back to your question, uh, uh, specifically on the, on the energy and the sanctions there uh, and the impact, clearly, what we have seen with the latest measures taken, uh, well, US has taken the, the measures, I would say, very, uh, very forth, forcefully to, to ban all fossil fuel, uh, Russian, uh, fossil, uh, Russian fossil fuels for, from being imported in the US, including uh, coal, uh, oil, and gas. Situation is Euro in Europe, as you know, is a bit more uh, challenging because we are very much uh, dependent globally as Europe uh, to to, uh, to uh, Russian oil, especially on gas. Uh, but we have realized that we have also to, to work on that and, uh, and no later than, uh, I mean, we have in the fifth package now, we have banned the, the coal import. Uh, we are also continuing working and uh, a lot of discussions happening on the path towards uh, maybe banning altogether oil and, uh, and gas. But we've already decided this was the, the proposal of the EU with this uh, repower EU packages to uh, to be on a path to uh, 
to not being dependent any longer, to get alternative sources in a framework of 18 months to, to two years. It will take that time. Um, now the questions, what is the consequences on transport, on decarbonization? Uh, the consequence, I have to say, is will be positive. As was said by, uh, by uh, Executive Vice President Timmermans speaking with her, uh, Kerry, is that it will be positive. Why? Because it will accelerate uh, uh, our dependence on fossil fuel. And you have seen all the measures and announcements made by European leaders to go away gradually from fossil fuels and to investing more into renewable and investing more also on uh, LNG, so uh, uh, liquid natural gas, which is also a fossil fuel, but incidentally, it happens to be a fossil fuel which is less greenhouse gas emission and which will be a transition, help the transition. But the whole discussion there and the whole path will be an acceleration uh, of the, the use of uh, renewable for this. And there is a real commitment to accelerate on our path, on our objectives, to, uh, to uh, go away from fossil fuel for, from transport. Uh, and what I expect as well, I was mentioning those, those rules, those regulations that we put forward, proposed uh, to decarbonize uh, cars and, and other sectors. Uh, I expect that the process, which typically uh, you know, is, is uh, between 12 months when things go fast to two or three years can be long, to, to accelerate, and I expect that by the end of the year we will we will uh, round up a number of those uh, discussions on these uh, rules that we have proposed there. So the effect will be uh, will be uh, we think positive in all I would say the, the grim situations in in, in all the, the suffering, of course, because we think about that. I mean, we the, the priority is to to stop this war, the sanctions, the the effect, or the, what we what we expect to achieve with this is. To have Russia stop its aggression altogether, stop the suffering, uh, go away from uh, from from Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we are also supporting all the uh, the migrants. And I was talking about measures. We have more than four million uh, Ukrainian refugees now in in Europe. A lot of them on the border countries: uh, Poland, uh, uh, Romania, uh, uh, even even Moldova, which is not an EU member state, but really on the border there. A lot of them are now also. Uh, welcome and sheltered in other European countries. But even that, 4 million people in terms of transportation there uh, and getting those people from the border to the rest of different areas is a challenge per se. And there, uh, I'm proud to say that uh, overall, the, uh, the, the transport industry, transport community in Europe has been uh, really has shown uh, tremendous solidarity uh, you know that all the, the railways, the European railways companies have provided transport free of charge for all the refugees, uh, all the major transport companies, whether, uh, you know, bus companies, uh, I was mentioning the rail um, and, uh, and even some airlines have provided those uh, transport for free. There is an immense sense of solidarity happening at the moment. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, funding has been also uh, provided, additional funding provided to help the refugees. Uh, so we think about them, and uh, but uh, yeah, we, we we have to concentrate on that. But we see also positive effects in our uh, in our strategy uh, for decarbonization. It's a side effect. It's it's odd to speak about positive effects of a tragedy, 
happening right now um, and that we are fighting, I mean, with the means that we have. Uh, but we, we believe that uh, it gives us also some, some thinking that we were right in the strategy and we need to be even more ambitious and bold in, in, uh, in, uh, in going forward with our measures because uh, it will help on several fronts, not only on decarbonization, but also on, on the energy uh, security independence. You mentioned independence when it comes to the energy mix. So one of the things that people know in, in conversation here in Miami is that Europe depends a lot on, on Russian gas, right? I, how does the, is fossil fuels dependency also with Russia? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very good question. And that's, uh, uh, that's one of the, I would say that one of the big difference between the, between the U S and Russia is that we in, in Europe are still very much dependent on Russian gas, mm. gas, uh, meaning, uh, which is the, the, I think it's the dependency is about 40%, a bit more than 40%. And this is gas used to, uh, you know, to, to fuel uh, uh, our industries, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to fuel the homes, to heat the homes, uh, the buildings that we have, um, and also to, uh, to produce electricity in some of the electrical plants that we have. They are fueled with, uh, with gas. Uh, but also we have a dependency on oil per se. Uh, so it's in the order of, uh, of 30%. Mm. And this is really the, the fuel that is being refined and used uh, in our cars. Uh, and uh, so this is much more than, than obviously that what you have in, in Russia, uh, sorry, in the, in the US, uh, which was very, very little dependency on, on the Russian oil. I think uh, US was important 10% of its oil, but US is almost, uh, I would say, self-sufficient uh, in terms of oil production, we can say, uh, overall in energy. And, and that is why uh, our, our, the work and the dependency and the work towards ensuring diverse security supply is so important. Just to give you a, a, an idea also on how this moves and the part of this uh, dependency on, on gas and oil um, and fossil fuel, generally speaking, versus renewable and, and nuclear. Uh, in, in Europe, when you think about the electricity which is produced, which is, of course, important when you think of electrification of the cars, uh, 37 or 38 percent of the electricity produced in Europe uh, comes from renewable sources. So uh, wind, uh, inland and offshore wind or solar uh, or, 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 or bio or biomass or, or tide or whatever. I mean, other, other means. We have 25 percent of energy which is produced by nuclear, nuclear plants. Uh, some countries more than others. Uh, France is a, is a, is a big uh, I would say the largest uh, in Europe producer of uh, nuclear-based electricity, uh, but we still have about 37% of the, the electricity produced in Europe, which is based on fossil fuel, whether oil uh, or gas. And those, as, as we mentioned or discussed earlier, uh, a large portion of this uh, still uh, comes from Russia and we, we need to, to get rid of this dependence. So that's why uh, all the measures that we are taking and these accelerations towards um, uh, towards uh, decarbonization altogether in terms of renewable, but also getting away from fossil fuel, especially fossil fuel from Russia, is so important. Incredible. No, it's 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 um, it's eye-opening because everybody thinks it was just gas, you know, for the heating of the homes. That was the conversation because it's it's linked to the you know what can be done, you know, in, yeah. in when it comes to sanctions and stuff like that. But I did not know about uh, fossil fuels and that Russia also yeah, produces a bunch of gas. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, 
you know, when you look at the, the different sanctions, so we, I mentioned earlier that that U.S. decided to, to ban already uh, coal and, and oil and, uh, and, and gas, uh, which is a great thing. In Europe, it's been more challenging to come to decisions. But good news is that we have decided uh, just uh, uh, last night, yesterday, it was, it was announced by the Commission to, uh, to ban the import of coal, which is the first step. Uh, and discussions on really uh, gradually uh, banning uh, uh, oil and gas are, are still are still ongoing. In addition to all the other measures that we put in place to ensure the, 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 the diverse, diversification of our supplies, uh, we, we are still uh, considering that because it, it is important that that we we, we stop basically uh, uh, flooding also some 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 money. To, the, to this regime, to the Russian mm. regime, because mm. a lot of money is going there um, still, and uh, we need to stop that. We need to stop uh, that, that influx of money going that, in that direction. Now, bringing it, bringing it out to Miami. So last March, we had the pleasure to host you here. You know, you were uh, on an official two-day visit to Miami where you met with local authorities, including the port, the Miami International Airport, and transportation authorities of Miami-Dade County. Can you share with us some of your impressions with us? Well, first of all, it was really uh, an honor and, and a pleasure to, to, be, uh, to be in Miami uh, and to meet the officials. It was uh, for a long time, since pre-COVID, the first uh, official meeting uh, outside of D.C. Uh, even. Uh, so it was a real pleasure to meet them. And, and I found uh, extremely useful on a personal level, but also in terms of the agenda that we have and the topics that we discuss in, in transportation. Uh, because for several reasons. First of all, uh, when you look at Miami uh, and Florida, generally speaking, but, but at Miami, uh, well, Florida is, is a very important trade partner of the EU. Uh, of course, US is, 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 is the biggest trade partner, but Florida uh, also. Uh, but when you look at transportation, uh, first of all, Miami is the capital cruise of the world, like uh, the Miami officials like to say it, and it is true. Where you find all this during COVID, it was stopped, but it has resumed. It is resuming, and now it's almost back to normal as we understand. Uh, but also, Miami, in terms of uh, a transport of uh, of uh, maritime cargo, is really uh, the entry port or uh, some kind of a hub with Latin America, and a lot of the uh, the world ocean carriers, uh, especially between Europe and uh, and uh, Latin America or. or America are using Miami. So it's really an important element. So a lot of a good element of discussions there. Uh, and secondly, also Miami Airport, I can say with the same Miami uh, Airport is really one of the entry points to, to South America uh, as well and to Latin America. And, uh, and also we have learned a lot of things there. But coming back to the topics of discussions of, of today, uh, I think if I go by order, we first had this meeting with the uh, the Miami port, what we realize is that uh, in addition to all the challenges that all ports in the world have uh, in terms of uh, passengers with COVID, all the restrictions, all the measures and all the efforts that the port authorities have done, especially here in Miami, to, to make sure that, first of all, their people are safe during COVID, but also uh, working on those other measures. But also in terms of cargo, making sure that uh, work continues and uh, supply chains, everything has continued. 
uh, and uh, the, the port authorities have done the maximum to ensure that this continue working. This was really appreciated. But in addition to that, when we discussed the, the areas of uh, decarbonization, we realized that uh, we are on the same page. You know, measures taken by port authorities to decarbonize transport, we realized that same is being done here in Miami. An example, I was mentioning, uh, you know, uh, uh, alternative fuels for maritime transport, very difficult. Uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, it's a difficult path also to decarbonize maritime. We didn't go into the details, but one of the measures is making sure that, for instance, LNG is used for the maritime industry. Nowadays, what's happening is that uh, the cruise industry, many cruise lines have, uh, have, have, uh, have uh, purchased new, new vessels, which are LNG uh, fueled. The good things about LNG is that the, the carbon footprint of energy is between 20 and 30%, uh, I would say, uh, smaller. So uh, the, the greenhouse gas emission or, or CO2 emission from, uh, from LNG fueled vessels is between 20 to 30% lower. And the Miami uh, port has invested on LNG bunkering, so basically LNG fueling, for uh, a couple of uh, cruise lines here in Miami, which will come with new vessels uh, with LNG ships. And LNG, this, sorry, LNG is, again, sorry? Uh, liquid uh, natural gas. So ah. basically, it's natural gas, which is uh, liquefied and to be used as a fuel for, uh, for, for vessels, for, for uh, ship uh, vessels, uh, instead of the, you know, the, the raw oil, uh, dirty oil that some people call it that is used for, for fueling the vessels. And uh, so a number of uh, cruise lines and more and more of those are using or have, have, uh, have uh, ordered uh, LNG uh, uh, vessels. Uh, this is true in vessels, uh, in, in lines, in cruise lines, which will uh, dock uh, in, in Miami. Uh, but also on the cargo side, you have a number of ocean carriers which ca carry cargo, which have now embarked in using uh, LNG uh, cargo. One of them is uh, CMA TGM. It's a French company, which, uh, which has its uh, hub for Latin America in Miami. And we also had the opportunity to meet um, uh, people from this company there but they also use uh, LNG vessels. So the fact that Miami Port Authority has invested in this LNG bunkering is one example. In addition to that, uh, Miami Port Authorities have also decided to build what we call onshore powering. So electrical uh, powering of the vessels which are uh, at the bay actually on berth. So, uh, you know, cruise ships uh, and, and vessels spend 30% of their time not on the sea, but on the docks at the berth. Hmm. And when they are there, uh, they burn fuels unless they have uh, electricity to fuel their operations while at berth. To do that, you need specific, uh, I would say, uh, uh, charging infrastructure dedicated to, uh, to those vessels. And Miami is uh, Miami Port Authorities have also engaged in uh, in uh, with the, the local utilities to invest on those. So you see that just on the maritime front, we had this discussion on how we have the same in Europe. We have also engaged in 
in uh, funding and also promoting uh, the use of those on 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 port uh, electrical uh, uh, charging of the, of the vessels. So we have really a synergies there. We had a great conversation on that. Uh, if I may, another example of our discussion, uh, we had a, a great meeting with the uh, Miami Data Transportation Planning Organizations uh, and colleague uh, of the transport authorities in Miami. And uh, this was really also, uh, I think, an eye opener. I think that the colleagues there of the Miami Transportation uh, Planning Organization, and we were welcomed by uh, uh, by the, the chairman of the Miami Day, the so-called the TPO, the Honorable uh, Honorable Gilbert, there, and, and and many colleagues to discuss about the challenges of Miami and the, the of the of the Miami Dade in building sustainable transport for the uh, for for the uh, uh, for for the uh, for, for the city and for the inhabitants of, of the area, uh, and of course there the exchange was really on. What we do in Europe in terms of sustainable transport in urban environments, how to make sure that um, we uh, we have all the means available, and obviously between Miami and generally speaking U.S. cities and European cities, we have a different uh, history, different geography, uh, which makes it different. In Europe, we have a, a very much I would say historical older city. Uh, the density is higher. And that is why public transportation, uh, metro buses, uh, whatever, is more available than probably in cities in the U.S., with the exception, of course, of, of New York and, and San Francisco and others. But it has to do with the geography. But still, there are ways to, uh, to, uh, to build alternatives, uh, to, to show that it is possible to create those uh, alternatives, uh, whether with... Uh, Metro system, whether with a, with a, with a pilot that uh, the Miami Dade Transportation Authorities is conducting uh, to have alternatives uh, between the different areas of Miami, uh, and we have shared really great ideas, great views on that. Um, one element which we, we were, I was trying to uh, to reflect on, and uh, with this is this concept of sustainable uh, urban uh, mobility plan. And it is an, an element which we are pushing quite a lot in Europe uh, to, uh, to make the city authorities realize that, you know, creating uh, a good transport systems, which is at the same time uh, sustainable, requires some planning, some thinking, uh, beyond purely speaking with a transport expert, but also speaking with all the, uh, the city authorities, uh, the communities, obviously, and there in the U.S., I was really pleased, and, and it's something that I know there the consent uh, community uh, discussion uh, are happening. So people are involved. It's important, uh, but really we need to plan a bit more uh, uh, long term uh, and also promote all the alternatives uh, and think of sustainability. Sustainability uh, not in isolation. When we speak about uh, sustainable urban transport mobility, it's not only about decarbonizing transport but also in providing safer environments, safer, uh, safer roads, uh, safer uh, and more secure uh, transport for all the people. It has to be a bit more holistic. And uh, so we had discussions around those topics and how to exchange the best practices. It was really an eye-opener. Last point that I want to mention, I mentioned technology innovation. Uh, I know that uh, Miami, Florida, generally speaking, but Miami is becoming 
one of the new uh, the newest technology uh, hubs uh, uh, in Europe. You know, we had the Silicon. You have the Silicon Valley still out, out there, but uh, but uh, Florida and Miami specifically, with some other area, maybe Texas as well, are becoming really now new uh, innovation technology hubs. And we we also had some interesting discussion and meetings uh, while in Miami with uh, some companies. Uh, which are now based in Miami. Those are European companies in the area, for instance, on what we call uh, advanced air mobilities or urban air mobilities, those air taxis. Uh, it is an area which is developing in the US. It's no longer science fiction to see flying cars or what we believe are flying electric cars. Um, so we have a number of companies, American companies and European companies developing this. and uh, And some of them, are choosing Florida, Miami, to uh, to build, to develop their product, but also to test them, because because of the geography of Florida, where you have uh, Miami and also cities around Miami situated uh, between 100 and 150 miles, and because right now, with the exception of cars and a few rail lines, you have not many uh, opportunities or options. This creates opportunities for those companies to think of new business models and how those so-called new uh, electric uh, vertical uh, takeoff and landing uh, uh, vehicles can provide an alternatives for those who need it to go faster between uh, Orlando and Miami or between uh, uh, you know different areas around Miami to Miami and to the different environment. So a lot of things happening. A lot of new discussions on energy technology, and I didn't mention the great meetings that we had at the airport also with the, with the colleagues there, because in terms of operations, in terms of cargo operations, I find out, this I didn't know, that Miami is the number one uh, air cargo uh, airport in the U.S. And it's the biggest pharma hub also in terms of air cargo. And a lot of challenges as well there in uh, air cargo uh, uh, in the expansion of the airport as well, uh, and, and security, of course, security aspect. So a lot of great discussions. I think I learned a lot. I hope that my interlocutors also learned and uh, are able to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to benefit of what some of the things that we think do can be useful. And that was the whole purpose. And uh, again, I, I really am grateful to, uh, to Christina for making this happen and to all the interlocutors in Miami and, uh, I hope to be back in Miami in, in person to continue those conversations uh, at some point and to, to enjoy also Miami, which I started having a glimpse of, of it in, during those two days. But I hope to be back to, to also uh, to learn more. Uh, and if I may, sorry, I'm being long. Uh, we had also these great meetings, you meant ac academia at the University of Miami, uh, where we met uh, the, the dean of the... Uh, the business school, uh, John Quelch, uh, there, and uh, we also met students there. And I was impressed also by uh, uh, by the quality uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the questions of the, the students, the exchanges that we had there, uh, and uh, well, and also by, by the campus of the uh, University of Miami as well. Um, and uh, great environment and uh, and great uh, opportunities to exchange. And I think we need to do to do more of that because the new generations need to to learn more. Uh, about all those options, opportunities, challenges, and be engaged. And uh, that's, that's one way also to engage with them.
I'll stop here. Sorry to, for being so long. No, Kazim, this has been this has been great. You know, this is this is why transatlantic transatlantic relationships are so important because you get to come down here, we get to have conversations, we get to exchange best practices, and that is the only way that we can grow and find solutions faster and better. So, thank you to the EACC for bringing Kazim down with with his team, and I'm going to pass it over to the EACC for some final words. But this has been eye-opening, educational. Gazim, thank you so much. This is what we go for here with Miami Global Net is to educate uh, Miamians and listeners on what's happening and break it down in an understandable way. And you did a great job with that. So thank you so much. So Christina, please. Alejandro, I couldn't have said it better than what, what you just said. I mean, this was a crash course in transportation policy, cooperation between the US and the EU on decarbonization, but also I am so happy to hear that the visit uh, that that you, no, your visit to Miami uh, together with, with Mercedes um, Garcia Perez, uh, you know, the head for innovation, there were two of you who came, was so successful and that the, 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 the exchanges were so fruitful. Uh, I mean, I, I heard good things about it from, from our interlocutors here as well. So uh, you are absolutely, definitely welcome to come back. Uh, you, uh, Mercedes, and you know all the colleagues from from the EU delegation, and also from Brussels. We have a direct flight now. You know for a few months between between Brussels and, and Miami. So I hope I hope that we'll have more more visits. Um, you know, like like the ones that that you did. So many thanks, Alejandro, for inviting EACC Florida to partner with Miami Global Net on this deep dive on the decarbonization of transportation. And many thanks to you, uh, to our guest, uh, Gazimo Kakoglu from the EU delegation um, for sharing, I mean, your deep expertise, your enthusiasm, uh, your, your passion uh, for, for this topic and, 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 and your deep respect also of your interlocutors and for the companies and, and for, you know, the people that that you met here um uh, you know I, i'm very grateful for those impressions of your visit to miami that you shared with us so you can find further details about our guest miami global net and eacc florida in the podcast notes please share uh, please check uh, eacc florida's website for upcoming programs and information on how to join we are a membership organization after all and subscribe to miami global net to find out more about miami's international Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Gazim. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much.